I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. And now Livewire presents really important conversations happening at really inappropriate times. This week, we look at inappropriate places to break up with your girlfriend after she's just loaned you a lot of money. First up, trapped in a snow cave on Mount Everest. You're breaking up with me now? Uh, But you owe me so much money! I know, this is really awkward. While accepting a BET award for best urban rhyme scheme. This award means so much to me. Uh, I'd especially like to thank my ex-girlfriend, Alicia. Ex-girlfriend! During the birth of your child. Uh, I just don't feel like... I, I feel like I shouldn't be tied down right now. Okay. You, you think this is a good time for this? Oh, come on. Is it ever a good time for this? I mean, Facing down a bear. Oh. All right, all right. Just stay calm. If you don't move, you'll be fine. Okay, okay. But I think I should move. Uh, Out. I mean, I think I'm moving out. What? Uh, You can't possibly be breaking up with me now! It's weird, I can. But don't take it personally. It's not you. It's... It's... And you also have comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to. Poet Scott Poole with What I Learned Tonight, wherein Scott sits in our audience and in just one hour, the time it took Longfellow to sneak a few Three's Company-esque misunderstandings into his translation of Dante's Divine Comedy, Scott writes a poem that encompasses all the lessons he's learned during the show. And of course, music from our house band, Ralph Huntley and the Mutton Chops. to start off uh, this show with a hearty congratulations to all of our listeners for surviving Thanksgiving last weekend. Uh, We're all well on our way to Christmas, and uh, I obviously survived, but just barely. Uh, I wanted to actually take this opportunity uh, to thank my family for showing up at Thanksgiving this year. (laughs) 24 people. (laughs) Wow, that's just... Wow, <laughs> that's a lot of people. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not even sure how the refrigerator survived. Although there are things in there that I don't really recognize. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you guys some pictures for identification purposes. And not to air my dirty family laundry on the radio, but I know we were talking about doing Christmas here too. And I just, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, let's be honest. There were, there were a few problems at Thanksgiving, you guys. Um, I mean, of course, I appreciate and accept everyone's diet limitations, the gluten intolerance, 
the veganism, Jordan's obsession with Iron Chef and his introduction of monkey brains into the green bean casserole. But I absolutely cannot abide a boiled turkey. That was disgusting. Also, uh, I think we can all agree that the knife fight that broke out over canned versus homemade cranberry sauce was unacceptable. In the future, Nana and Mima will be frisked upon entry into my house. It's awkward, but necessary. And of course, uh, we're very upset that in all the commotion around the grease fire and the apples to apples gang war, that uh, Aunt Sherry and Uncle John still haven't found Jody. To refresh your memory, he is their middle son. He is seven. If you could just please check to make sure he's not mixed in with your kids somewhere. Uh, He was last seen wearing the free mustache rides t-shirt his Uncle Bob gave him. (laughs) Thanks, thanks Uncle Bob. And lastly, you know, I support everyone's right to express themselves physically in whatever way they deem appropriate, but I would have appreciated if mom and dad would have asked my permission before filming the saucy pilgrim on my dining room table. I'm sure the gravy stains will come out of the chairs, but the memories will be harder to erase. All that being said, I'm still, I'm thankful to have you all. I can't imagine a Thanksgiving without family. And, you know, our local fire department does look forward to mom's pecan chocolate chip pie every year when they come to put something out. (laughs) So uh, I hope you have a great holiday season and we will see you next year. I'll bring Mima if she can make bail. Our musical guest tonight is a band that specializes in jangly pop music that sticks to your brain like sweet, gooey glue. They were formed in 1999 as a side project for frontman Eric Johnson, but then they became his main focus. They've released five records, four of them on the sub-pop label, and tonight they'll be playing songs from their most recent release, Tripper. Please welcome Fruit Bats to Livewire.
Welcome to the show, Eric. This is Eric Johnson, the lead singer of the band. Thanks, Ben. Yeah. I am, I am he, and thanks. <laughs> so um, when I was listening to it, it really, it feels like road trip music to me. You know, you're just, you're, you're in a convertible in Portland, and you're, you have pneumonia. But, but the, wind, the wind is in your hair, and, and your scarf is flying behind you, and you're wearing lipstick. Did you imagine that was happening to you as you were writing it? No. Um, <laughs> um, no, but I, I, I like hearing it when people say that that's... They, I, I get that a lot. And, uh, yeah. um, not the lipstick part, part? or pneumonia, but... Right. Um, but uh, yeah, like a lot of people say, like I, I we took this to we took this record to the Grand Canyon or something like that, and that's super cool. Yeah, well, and the 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 record is called Tripper, and and sort of the title song of the record is called Tony the Tripper, and that's actually a song about a trip that you took on a train, right? Yes. Can you t- can you talk about who Tony was? Yeah, um, it's like we it would take a really long time for me to really tell you the whole story, but the the gist of it which uh, was that I was sort of a young guy, 20, I think I was, and um, I was uh, sort of excited to, to get out and be a bohemian vagabond on the road, I guess, and on Amtrak, which is really super bohemian. But, uh, right. but, uh, but I actually met a real-life, like, freaky drug-addled hobo on the train who sort of, uh, who kind of like saw me as like maybe his, a possible protege or something. Nice. And, uh, and sort of took me under his wing and it was, it was, it was weird and, and um, but a very interesting experience of sort of like the clash between two generations and, and uh, like a guy who really was truly had kind of gone for it at one point and never really came back and me who was sure uh, but I mean I did yeah I ended up like being in bands like shortly thereafter and touring all over the place which I have for a long time so I guess I kind of did get my my wanderlust uh from Tony yeah from Tony yeah yeah um but Tony yeah so uh anyways I've always I've tried to write the story because it's there's way more to it it was funny and disturbing and awesome but um (laughs) but uh it, uh, I, so I turned it into a song, and the song, which we're actually going to play later, is, is that oh, song. Great. So um, it's the fictionalized sequel to the story. Actual story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll look forward to that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you actually, uh, you don't, you, you're not just in Fruit Bats. You're, you also have taken on sideman duties with bands like Vetiver and The Shins. Um, what does doing that do for you creatively when you're in one band and you kind of take on? I don't know. I never have done anything. Like, I've always sort of done all th- Like, a lot of people, like, do the sideman thing and then break free or, or do songwriting and, and then it, they can't handle it or whatever, and they're like, I just want to be in somebody else's band. But I've always kind of done both, and um, they do something totally different. It's like, it's a, it's a, it's a totally different job. So, um, I like not being in the spotlight and sort of, yeah. sort of hanging back. But I also, I do like you- what I get from writing songs too. Right. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you take some stuff back creatively from being in, with those bands for a while? Of course, yeah. I mean, it kind of sticks in your craw a little bit. So, um, But having to... Yeah, like with the shins, like I, re- I started writing in different keys because like, huh. I was playing in different keys like that I'm comfortable... Like, went outside my comfort zone musically a lot, which was interesting, and it, it sort of changed the way I approached well, writing. Bo- and, both yeah. you and James Mercer have higher registers for yeah. men. We get vocal comparisons a lot, and we actually... We have a similar speaking voice, too. We found... Like, people get us mixed up from the other room or something, so I was like... People are like, he's stealing James Mercer's vocal style. And I'm like, no, we just have the same <laughs> right. vocal cords, I think, or something. Right. So. Have you considered uh, crank calls? Yeah. I could At do, all? I could, I could, yeah. Maybe I, I haven't, but I am now. So. Right. <laughs> Caller ID has just been the, oh, the yeah. death of crank yeah, calls. Totally, I yeah, feel so can't. bad for kids today. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, you, can't you can't ever ask anyone if the refrigerator's running. Um, <laughs> I wanted to ask, last year you actually scored a movie. It was an Uma Thurman... A couple f- movies, actually. Uh, uh, an Uma Thurman film called, called Ceremony, this yeah. one. Did you like the process of scoring a film? Yeah, I loved it. I actually did another one like later um, in the year called Our Idiot Brother. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, um, I, yeah, I love doing it. I was, I'm, was sort of a secret, not so secret, like film nerd 
growing yeah. up and still am. So it scratches, scratches an itch for me. Good. Well, we'll look forward to seeing those. And we look forward to hearing the title song from the record yeah. coming up later in the show. Thanks so much, Eric Johnson of the Fruit Bats. Music tonight is brought to you by Dave's Killer Bread and the bread of the week, Peace Bomb Mini Baguette. Jam-packed with 100% whole grain sprouted wheat and 8 grams of protein per slice. Enjoying this bread doesn't make you a hippie, but those Birkenstocks you're wearing might. (laughs) That and naming your kid Friendship Moonstone Panda. But the Peace Bomb doesn't. Dave's Killer Bread, making the world a better place, one loaf of bread at a time. Welcome back to Livewire. Are you tired of the same old boring vacations? Do you wish your life was as exciting as the movies? Well, now it can be. At Maisie and Alan Finkelman's Movie Travel Agency, we've got amazing movie-themed vacation packages. Some of our most popular packages include Romancing the Stone. This is a very popular jungle-based package. You'll fly first class to exotic Colombia, where we'll strand you on the dangerous road to Cartania with only a treasure map and a Michael Douglas lookalike. A real sweet value at $1,800. Hey, want more jungle? How about Avatar? You'll spend a week in the Brazilian rainforest, totally naked and totally painted blue. The whole thing's in vibrant three-dimensionals. How about the Shawshank Redemption? You will be sentenced to one to two weeks in a damp cell circa 1945. This thrill ride has everything. Laundry room duty, mess hall duty, sodomy, exercise in the yard, more sodomy, and movie night. If you call right now, you'll receive 50% off the following packages. Hotel Rwanda, Sid and Nancy, Kramer versus Kramer. It's a real good one for the kids, folks. The Crying Game, Taxi Driver, and The Shining, featuring Scatman Carruthers lookalike, Scatman Gonzalez. So many great packages, so little vacation time. Make yours count and call us at Maisie and Alan Finkelman's Movie Travel Agency today. Faces for Radio Theater members, Sean McGrath. Our next guest grew up two streets behind Billy Ray Cyrus in Flatwoods, Kentucky. She moved to Portland after graduating from Ohio State and currently works as a therapist. She's also appeared as a storyteller on Mortified and on Backfence PDX. She is also, much, much more importantly, the undefeated leg wrestling champion in four states. Please welcome Amber Joe to Livewire. I am super competitive, and knowing this, my coworker asked me to join a charity poker tournament. And I had never played poker before, but I 
had just spent uh, Thanksgiving watching Chris Moneymaker win the World Series of Poker. It was supposedly one of his first tournaments. So inspired by him, I went to Pal's Books on my lunch break and got a poker book by Phil Homuth. Went to the cafe at Pal's and uh, read over that book for free and took notes on how to <laughs> win in poker. And I uh, got up the next morning, went to the poker tournament, and played, according to Phil Helmuth's theory, uh, against 70 men, and uh, won that tournament. <laughs> yep. Um, now, I had a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in social work, and I had $90,000 in debt. I was making $15 an hour working for a nonprofit. Yeah, so after eight hours and taxes, I'm bringing home like $95 a day. Uh, after eight hours uh, playing poker with these guys and having free beer and pizza, I brought home $1,500. So I was, uh, was going to realize my dream of becoming a millionaire and uh, via playing poker on the weekends. So uh, the very next weekend, I went and played another poker tournament. I did really well. Again, Phil Homeuth, making it to the end, the final table, um, where I was really put to the test. Um, chapter 9 of Phil Homeuth's book talks about pot odds, had a really good hand, but this guy threw me off because the odds didn't make sense, so I folded my hand, and he was uh, what's called bluffing. He showed a 7-2. I was heartbroken. Uh, so what I did was I went and I invested in some books at Pals on poker theory. I spoke with some people about poker, and I realized Phil Helmuth didn't write a book on how to beat Phil Helmuth at poker. He just wrote a book on how to play him. And, uh, and so I had to find something special within myself uh, to bring to the game, because if you're playing poker with people who know how to play poker, it's like applying to Harvard. Everybody has A's, scores high in their SATs you need. You need to know someone. You need something special. Uh, now, I'm from Kentucky, uh, not the part where they race and race horses and drink mint juleps. I'm from the part of Kentucky where your moms fight, fist fight in the front yard till the losing mom ends up in a ditch. And <laughs> I, uh, I survived and thrived in Kentucky by bullying, lying, and, uh, and cheating. And uh, I kept my strawberry shortcake overall stuffed with candy, and I didn't get molested by all the men on the block, but using those skills. Uh, when I came out to the Pacific Northwest, uh, I learned to be passive-aggressive, like everyone else, and a little late. <laughs> and um, couldn't, couldn't use those skills anymore. But now I could sublimate uh, those childhood traits of lying, bullying, intimidation at poker with the pro-social uh, traits of lying, bullying, and uh, intimidation. So I did that, and I started doing really well. Again, I started winning a lot of money, started playing a lot of tournaments. Then uh, I got uh, really pretty deep. There is actually, there's an underbelly world of gambling that goes on in Portland, illegal gambling. And I was, I was into that, and uh, we, uh, we're, we got a room at this uh, club called The Room. We had the VIP room upstairs. We had our own waitress. And uh, we would play till the wee hours. And uh, the fun part in the VIP room was the newbies, uh, when the new guys would come. And there's the few, um, few types. There's like the trust fund, the hunky trust fund guy who always had cash. And uh, then there's the, I shied away from this type. There was the, um, the bipolars, the wild, you know, wild eye, and they're on a manic spending spree. Um, and then uh, the, my favorite were like the distinguished businessman who uh, was illegally taking money from his 401k before his wife got half of it. He's like gladly gambling all that money away. Uh, that was fun. And uh, this one night we had, a, we had a newbie unlike any other. He was a, he was a kid. I, I don't think he was allowed in there, but I don't think we were allowed to be gambling like we were anyway, so he was there. And uh, one thing that always happened was that we always won all the newbies' money, but... Um, it's like to the wee hours, and this kid is like, bunk, you know, bucking Bronco. He's still going. He's still got cash. 
And uh, the waitress let us play past closing, but uh, she was like eight months pregnant. It was 4.30 in the morning. She'd been on her feet eight hours. She needed to get home. So we played uh, what uh, we called high card and what everybody in this room would call just absolutely ridiculous. Uh, you just, Andy just throws down a deck of cards, and there's like seven of us, and we throw $100 on the table, and you just pick up a card. Whoever has the highest card wins $700. Ha, 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 ha. Yeah. Uh, fun. <laughs> and uh, game goes pretty fast. Um, and there, there was three of us left standing, and I stopped it because I had uh, $260 left of what started off as my $1,400 paycheck that evening. And uh, I needed uh, $300 that day to, uh, to pay my friend. My partner had uh, recently just uh, kicked me out of the house. I, I still don't really know why, but um, my <laughs> friend was letting me stay with her and owed her 300 bucks. So I had to stop with the 260. But uh, that, that action was still in me. So just on my way just to go to the bathroom, I lost $20 in one of those crack lottery machines hoping to get a straight flush, $1,200, if you bet a dollar. And I, I lost $20. And when I went, made it back to the table, my buddies were action-talking as well. The kid was swearing up and down that a tablespoon of cinnamon would kill you if you ate just a pure tablespoon of cinnamon. My buddy Andy's like, no, nah, nah, nah. The kid's like, I bet you every dollar in your pocket it would kill you. My friend's like, he puts $700 on the table. The kid matches him. And I'm like, whoa. Where, where was I when this conversation started? And uh, the, kid, the kid's like, you don't want to take, you know, my friend Andy's like to the waitress, uh, motions her over, gives her $20. We need a little dish of cinnamon to settle a score. She brings it over. And the, uh, the kid's like, you don't want to do this. You don't want to do this. Like, uh, it gets, the cinnamon will get stuck in your throat and the Heimlich maneuver is not enough air to get all the powder out. You're going to choke. You're going to die. I bet you $700, you're going to die. I'm like, I'm like, Andy, no, no. If, if a tablespoon of cinnamon would kill you, there would be people on, like, Oprah crying about how their child died. A tablespoon of cinnamon, they're getting childproof. There would be public service announcements. Take the bet. And Andy was just as crazy of a gambler as any of us. And I don't know if he knew something about this kid that I didn't or if he just saw, like, the bet, 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 bet in my eyes. But he just decided not to take the bet. He took his $700 and put it in his pocket. And I was like, $240 out on the table. I take the bet. That's $480. I can pay the $300 rent. I have $180 left to eat lunch and play poker that night so I can make my car payment. <laughs> the kid's like, no, there's no bet. He called it off. Andy's, Andy calls the shots. He's like, no, she, she can do it. She, money's on the table. While they're talking, I'm doing some sublimating, and I take a little, just enough sip of my coffee that I can hold it in my mouth while I dump the cinnamon in and not have any coffee kind of dribble out and get busted. And I do that, and then I take the tablespoon of cinnamon, dump it in my mouth, and uh, this, the tablespoon of cinnamon quickly became like a grown man's wool ski sock with a built-in dehumidifier. I had no moisture left in the entire atmosphere of, of my body. And um, I am actually not sure that a tablespoon of cinnamon would not kill you if you didn't have a little bit of coffee in your mouth to begin with. Um, because um, I was like, oh. And what, what happened to me in this moment is what's called shock. Because I... I was calm, like my hair was like wispy underwater. Was like, and the kid is flailing his arms. He's like, call an ambulance. And then I don't know if he was bluffing or trying to save my life. He was like offering me water. And I was just, I was just very calm. And I was like, there's no rules. There's no time limit. I, I can, I will die or I will pay my rent. And I had just a ball of wet cinnamon, just a little ball of wet cinnamon powder in my mouth, so I just kept 
taking little chunks from that and working it. I had powder on my gums and in the back where my cavities were filled. There was some back there under my, I'm getting a little tongue tied. I had some on that little thing there. I just kept working it and I was taking my time. The waitress served my Denver omelet. She served Andy's biscuits and gravy. The kid had like a triple stack of French toast stuffed with cream cheese and strawberries. He had a large orange juice. She refilled the waters, the coffee. And then like, what, a month later, I opened my mouth to Andy and show him I did it. I got it all down. And then I, and then I, uh, take $480 and I put it in my pocket and I take that kid's orange juice because I'm the man now. I drink his orange juice down. And, uh, and the kid, he, he didn't care. He patted me on the shoulder because after all, uh, you know, betting on my life, live or die, we were friends. <laughs> Thank you. Amber Joe. Care to try a sample? Ew. Care to try a sample? Ew. Jeez. Care to try a sample? Mmm, what is that? It's our city line of scents. This one is called Portland. Mmm, it smells musky. That's the essence of recumbent bike seats. Oh. <laughs> I knew it smelled familiar. What, what's that slightly tinny odor? That's the Willamette River. The sense creator worked for two years to break down the five essential scents that make up the Willamette. Sturgeon, mercury, Hanford nuclear runoff, boat engine oil, and raw sewage. Oh, you know, I'm not sure this one's for me. How about our sister scent, Seattle? I'm wearing it on my decolletage. <sighs> smells like seagull poop and wet flannel to me. You have quite a nose, sir. Does, uh, does Portland come in an aftershave? Yes, it does. Mmm, smells nice. What is that? Korean tacos, biodiesel, coffee grounds, and the inside of a Subaru Outback after it's hauled two muddy Labradors home from a long run. Am I mistaken, or am I detecting just a suissant of facial hair as well? That's beard, sir. Locally grown. We add a single hair to each bottle. Heavenly. We'll take it. Nice choice. Oh, can I interest you in a free sample of something else? This one's called Williamsburg. I think you'll like it. It's exactly like Portland, but twice as expensive. Next on the show, we have an award-winning author, essayist, and editor. Brian Doyle's work can be found in the Atlantic Monthly, Harper's, and the San Francisco Chronicle, among others. He is the author of 11 books, including his first novel, Mink River, and his most recent book of short stories called Bin Laden's Bald Spot, which the Daily Beast called one of the best debuts of the fall. According to the Beast, he is a writer to be ignored at your own peril. So we won't. Please welcome Brian Doyle to Livewire. Good evening. Um, I just committed a novel, as a friend of mine says, like an inky sin. And uh, there's a piece in it that I love to read because to me it's more than a list of ingredients. It becomes sort of a chant or a litany or a prayer. So uh, in the scene, uh, there's an old man who's got about three days left to go. He's going to die, and he knows it. Everybody knows it. And a young guy says to him, can I ask you a question? Can I ask you a blunt question? What mattered? What mattered in your life? And the old man says, hawks huddled disgruntled against hissing snow, wrens in winter thickets, Swallows carving and swimming and slicing fat, grinning summer air. Frozen dew outlining every single blade of grass. 
salmonberries, blackberries, thimbleberries, raspberries, cloudberries, snowberries. My children learning to read the sinuous liquid flow of rivers and minks and cats. Fresh bread with way too much butter. My children's hands when they cut my ancient grizzled face in their hands. Exuberance and ebullience. Tears of sorrow which are the salt seas of the heart. Sleep in every form from doze to bone weary. The shivering ache of a saxophone and the yearning of an oboe. Folding laundry hot from the dryer, cobblers and tailors, spotless kitchen floors, the way horses smell in spring, postcards in which the sender has written so much that he or she can barely squeeze into signature. Opera on the radio, toothbrushes, the postman's grin, the green sifting powdery snow of cedar pollen on the porch every year, the way herons labor through the sky with such vast elderly dignity. People who care about hubcaps, the cheerful ears of dogs, all photographs of every sort, tip jars, wine glasses, the way barbers sweep up circles of hair after haircuts, handkerchiefs, libraries, poems read aloud by older poets on the radio. <laughs> Fedora hats, excellent knives, the very idea of albatrosses and thesauruses, the tiny screws that hold spectacles together, book marginalia done with the lightest possible pencil as if the reader is whispering to the writer. People who kept dead languages alive, wooden rulers, fresh mown lawns, first baseman's mitts, dish racks, the way my sons smell after their baths, the moons of Jupiter, all manner of boats, the fact that our species produced Edmund Burke, naps of every size, junior policeman badges, walruses, cassocks, surplices, the orphan caps of long lost pens, welcome mats, ice cream trucks, all manner of bees, cabbages and kings, eulogy and elegy and puppetry, fingernail clippers, the rigging of sailing ships, ironing boards, hoths and scythes, the mysterious clips that girls wear in their hair, bodhisattvas and beauticians, porters and portmanteaus, camas and canvas, bass and bluefish, furriers and farriers, trout and grout, peach pies of every size the sprawling porches of old hotels and the old men sprawl upon them, the snoring of children, the burble of owls, the sound of my daughter typing her papers for school in the other room, the sound of my sons wrangling and wrestling and howling and yowling, all sounds of whatever tone or tenor issue from my children, my children in all other forms of coupled pain and joy, which is to say everything alive, which is to say all prayers, which is what I just did. Amen. Brian Doyle. Welcome to the show, Brian. I'm honored to be invited, Courtney. Thank you. Um, that excerpt was sort of stream of consciousness, and it was a good, it was a good sampling of Mink River because that that runs through quite a bit, quite a bit of it, and it feels like you are just writing stream of consciousness. What kind of work does it take to make something appear to have just fallen out of the writer's head? Um, you cut a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you write in great bursts. You know, you try to. In a funny way, you try not to think. You try to, to sort of feel with your heart and your fingers. You know what I mean? You have a story in mind, and, and more ever than ever before, I think, I'm trying to let the story come out, you know, and, and not be in control of it. And, and if you get into a great burst, it's really sweet. Sometimes you forget what time it is, and you just, you're rolling, and, and the language is so playful and like a river. It's really sweet. And then you cut like hell. <laughs> mm -hmm. You just get out of its way, essentially. Yeah, if you can. Uh, and a novel is very freeing. I'm an essayist by avocation, you know, and, and by, by real love. I love that phrase, the essayist. It's so lovely. Uh, but novelist doesn't fit. I'm not tall enough. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I didn't realize there was a height requirement. You must be this tall to write. Um, before you wrote Mink River, as you said, you wrote a lot of essays. You wrote a lot of um, nonfiction books, including one about living through your son Liam's life-threatening heart condition. Did you feel like it was a relief to lose yourself in a fictional world for a while? Um, I was always terrified by fiction because I, I figured, why try to create a world when you can't grapple with this one very well? Uh, <laughs> But it was actually really fun. It, writing, you know, at the very, at the lowest level, it's catharsis. You, you get out. You have a window to, to let yourself out uh, through. 
But then more and more, especially as I get older, I think, what, a, what an incredible way to connect. People, people read your work, and, and with the novel, I find people swim in it. People are savoring it. You know, it's really amazing to me. I've been visiting book clubs hand over fist, and I'm trying to learn to not say anything at a book club because people tell me what the book is all about, and I'm like, really? <laughs> <laughs> it's really, interesting. the crow is a sign of death. I didn't know that. Really, that's... <laughs> <laughs> it seems like uh, it would be more, it would connect you with your audience more for, to have them read something intensely personal about you as opposed to a fiction book, but you're, you're saying that you feel more connected to them with them reading your, your novel. Well, I'm struck, I'm struck by how people read fiction and nonfiction differently, I guess. You know, I've gotten hundreds and hundreds of letters from people for the essays I've written, which is really sweet and amazing. And, but most of those letters have that same flavor of, you know, your piece hit me, thank you. And, and with the novel, it's more like, I lived in your town. I lived there for a while. And it really is very interesting to me, the different flavor. People, I think, swim in fiction more than they do in nonfiction. Nonfiction, we both have one foot on the, on the, on the planet. Yeah. Fiction, we're sailing off into other places altogether, mm -hmm. which I think is sort of nutritious, it seems to me, to invent. What a great thing. What a great idea for us human beings. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, I saw you speaking to a class, and, and you said something to them. You said, catching and telling stories is the single most important activity in your life. Do you think that that's good advice for writers or everyone? Oh, I think for everybody. I think stories are food. I think... I think if we don't have stories, we starve. I really do. This is the great cruelty of Alzheimer's, it seems to me, is that it sucks stories out and leaves you with nothing but a shell. What a, what a hell that it would be to be healthy and have no stories. You know, if we had ale enough in time, I could go around the room and say, tell me stories, tell me. And every one of us has a hundred, a thousand stories of, of power and hilarity and terrible mistakes. Yes, I'm talking to you, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I see you, yes. <laughs> Well, and you, you see yourself as a story collector. You know, you talk about just sort of always carrying around pens and pads, and right. as you talk to people, you kind of grab their stories. Do you ever feel like a sense of ownership, that they might have a sense of ownership to their own story? Well, this immediately reminds me of a great line from my dad. My dad is 90, a wonderful writer. And my dad, last year at our family reunion, said, learning to ask a question and shut your pie hole is the secret to great literature and great seduction. And we're all like, oh. oh. Oh, we were all horrified, you know. And my mother's yelling from the other room, that's why we had eight kids, for Christ's sake. <laughs> you know. My brother Peter says to him, how come you didn't tell us when we were 20? And my father says, smoking a cigar, you would have misused the gift, he says. <laughs> So have you discovered that to be true? Uh, I, haven't, I haven't found out yet. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, of course, the all, writer, all male writers, I think, start uh, as a writer because you want to get the girls. That's why. Yeah. And then uh, I think one of the great watersheds you, or one of the great shadow lines you go over as a writer is uh, at some point you realize that it's not about you, mm. that, that everybody else is more interesting. And it's, it's really a bummer to be 29 and discover that it's not all about you, but... <laughs> Uh, but it turns out it's a wonderfully freeing thing for a writer. When you, when you stop thinking about yourself and start listening to everybody else, the world presents you with stories by the millions. It's incredible. Yeah. It's yeah. really moving. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Well, and your latest book is actually a book. Uh, it's Bin Laden's Bald Spot, and it's a book of short stories. Uh, but your book begins with a humor piece about a barber who's dealing with Bin Laden's bald spot. What does attacking him with humor do that straight up attacking him doesn't well, do? Well, the, the backstory there is uh, Bin Laden murdered three of my friends on September 11th. And so for a long time, I didn't know what to do. I was helpless and enraged and uh, just really hammered by it, you know, having grown up in New York. And, and, uh, but then I finally realized the only way I can fight back is by a story, right? And, and I finally realized about Bin Laden, he was one of those guys. And every guy here knows what I mean. One of those guys was a stuffed shirt. He's arrogant, and the only way you can get a guy like that is to laugh at him, right? It's the one thing he can't stand is to be laughed at. And so I wrote a whole series of pieces. I realized, of course, they have to have haircuts in the, in the cave, right? Who knew he was living in McMansion? <laughs> but, right. Uh, and I thought, well, what would the barber think? I mean, the barber has to, cut, has to go cut hair for what he calls a, you know, a, a, basically a high school football team with major weaponry, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and uh, so he discovers that Bin Laden is a bald spot the size of Iceland. So, <laughs> And I used to send the pieces, I would publish them and send them to Bin Laden. Osama Bin Laden, Pakistan, I figured we'd get there, you know. Sure. And, you know, of course. <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
nice. And my, the, the poor woman who married me kept saying, what if he issues a fatwa? I said, well, Mary, I don't think you issue fatwas against essayists. I don't think that's it. You know? There's also, um, there's also a story in this book about a cardinal in Boston uh, who stood by oh, while Bernie. thousands of boys yeah. were taken advantage of by priests. And you are a Catholic, and you work for a Catholic university. What was at stake for you in writing a story like that? Well, I have my Catholic clothes on today, as you can see. Uh-huh. So, uh, at stake, for me, nothing really. I mean, that's Cardinal Bernard Law, formerly Bernie? of Bernie Law. Good old Bernie was formerly the Archbishop of, oh, the Cardinal Archbishop of Boston. Bernie covered his ears as thousands of children were raped. He covered his ears and moved the people around. And one great thing about Catholicism, we've been here for a long time, and we're very upfront about saying, we punted, we screwed up, as my father says, again, smoking a cigar. Ah, the old days when we owned the world. <laughs> it's like, but Dad, we screwed up. Ah, yes, but we owned France when we those, back in those days. So, um, you can be blunt about it. And one great thing about fiction is you can kind of take an, take an idea out for a walk. Mm-hmm. You know, what if? what if? What if actually, you know, Bernie escaped and he's living in Italy today and... But what if, you know, the Boston cops went and found him and brought him back? What would happen? And, and basically that's where the story goes. What if is the great driving force, I think, for a lot of fiction. It is, so. yeah. Yeah, and your father, uh, your father was a journalist. You wrote a book with your father. Yeah. What did you learn writing a book about faith with your dad? Well, the one thing I learned, I vividly remember, we went on the funniest book tour, and I learned never go on a book tour with your father. <laughs> <laughs> you know? He's smoking a cigar and asking people their names, and you know, he had this huge pen, a pen the size of like a, a defense missile. And I said, Pop, what are you doing with that pen? You know, and he goes, Well, a woman might ask me to sign her bra. I was like, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> on a book on faith. Yeah. Dad, Dad, a nun might ask, ask me to sign her bra. <laughs> Dad, that's, that's disturbing to right. hear. That explains my childhood to you. So Exactly. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. The book is Bin Laden's Bald Spot. The author is Brian Doyle. Thanks so much Thank for joining you. us. writer, essayist, editor, Brian Doyle, and you're listening to Livewire Radio. To take Livewire with you wherever you go, simply subscribe to iTunes or visit our website at livewireradio.org. Tonight's show is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market, who would like to remind you that their hormone and antibiotic-free turkeys also meet the high lifestyle standards of the Global Animal Partnership, including no crates, cages, or crowding, which is better than most reality TV shows can say. More information can be found at wholefoodsmarket.com. time for some teeny tiny tales, some Lilliputian literature. It's time for Livewire's Flash Fiction. Tonight our audience has been given the Herculean task of writing an entire story in just six words based on the prompt, My Life Story. Members of Faces for Radio Theater have their top picks and will now read them with the help of music director and Corbin Burnson lookalike, Ralph Huntley. And now, flash fiction. Hillary writes, I was in the circus once. (laughs) Jay says, I should have read the fine print. (laughs) 
Sarah writes, God called me to be agnostic. <laughs> Robert writes, raising hogs wasn't what I thought. <laughs> Excellent job, audience, on tonight's Flash Fiction. Flash Fiction was brought to you tonight, as always, by New Belgium Brewing Company. This month featuring their Snow Day Winter Ale, brewed with the new Midnight Wheat Hops, and featuring a creamy tan head that's probably wearing a jaunty toque, because it's cold in there. Enjoy the unexpected with Snow Day by New Belgium Brewing Company. Thanks, New Belgium. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Fruit Bats.
And now, as promised, the man who's been writing the entire hour while we've been hanging with our homies, to sum it all up for us, please welcome poet Scott Poole. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. I invariably get asked to read a poem during Thanksgiving. What I learned tonight is I need to write a sweet, sappy love poem suitable to read at Thanksgiving with relatives of all ages present and accounted for and in various stages of intoxication. (laughs) I need to write a poem that includes green bean casserole that may or may not include monkey brains, a poem that won't piss off grandma. I need to write a poem like a fruit bat song that makes you feel like you're having a special and groovy vacation that's also suitable for toddlers so you don't have to get a babysitter. I need to write a poem at Thanksgiving that makes you feel like you're on an epic road trip, not here at Thanksgiving with all your relatives listening to a poem by one of your relatives. A poem that makes you feel like you're traveling with a live turkey, living exciting adventures that gobbles and gaggles like Tony the real-life grizzled hobo, not hanging out with your Uncle Bob, who is a real-life grizzled hobo, who smells like a real-life turkey. I need to write a poem that makes everyone at the table feel like they're on a vacation, having a great time, like a great time that makes you feel like... You're winning an epic poker game in a high-stakes ballroom with interesting people who smell like cinnamon, but not such a great time that makes you feel like you're choking on cinnamon, losing a high-stakes poker game with people who smell like Portland. I want them to have a great time like reading a really great book and sharing stories in a little cute bed and breakfast and really appreciating the snowberries out the window. Not a great time like you're stealing a car and crashing it into a strip club and then firing off a weapon because you're pissed off no one can make a good cranberry sauce. Listening to my poem, I want them to come away with bits of wisdom like shut your pie hole and listen more is the key to seduction. But at the same time, I don't want them to really listen to the poem because then they will misuse the gift. Maybe this year, I'll just read it during the nap. It could be the best year yet. Scott Poole, everybody. That's our show for tonight. Thank you so much for listening. Our thanks to our guests tonight, Amber Jo Hatt, Brian Doyle, and Fruit Bats. The Mutton Chops are Ralph Huntley, Reed Wallsmith, and Jim Brunberg. Tonight's show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Dave's Killer Bread, and Burgerville, introducing Burgerville Radio, featuring music from Northwest musicians in all their restaurants. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, and listeners like you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. The faces for Radio Theater are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Hommeister. Performers Andrew Harris and Trisha Ferguson with sound effects by David Ian. Additional show writers are Jason Rouse, house poet Scott Poole, and Chelsea Kane. Faces for Radio Theater is directed by Jason Rouse. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom with house sound by Scott McLeod. Production management by Drew Flint. Thank you to Rose City Sound. Show theme by Courtney Vondrele and Ralph Huntley. Our show photographer is Jenny Baker. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app, and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.